Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would, you would take your word and, and you would do what you need to do, that you would just confront us and wherever we are and that you would perfect us and bring us closer to you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, those of you that are visiting, uh, my name is Chris Richards. I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church. And what we do here at Windsor is we, we stomp right through a book of the Bible. And right now we are in Genesis, and we're in Genesis chapter 15. We kind of took a little a hiccup break last week because we ran into this odd character named Melchizedek. And there's so many threads that, that thread this man all the way through Scripture. So we, we took a little look at, at Melchizedek and the priesthood and what it really means to have Christ as our mediator. And, and so we took a little break there from Genesis 14 because Melchizedek shows up the first time in Genesis 14 last week. So this week we are in Genesis chapter 15 and we're going to go through the first six verses of chapter 15. If you'd turn there, we'll read the first six verses together. There's a few Bibles if you need a Bible. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So first of all, this morning, what we're going to do is is put this in a broad context. Because this section, this is like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This is a a terrific passage. But it fits in a very specific context. And if we we look at, there's a passage in Romans Romans 8.30 that says, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified. And there's this this process that takes someone who believes God and, and God just acts that process out. And eventually... That person that he's called, he glorifies. And, and we see from chapter 12, so I'm just going to, we're going to rewind just quickly and, and throw all these chapters together. Chapter 12, we see God called Abraham, said, pick up your stuff and leave. I'm going to lead you to another land. So he leaves, he takes Sarah, he takes Lot, and, and he moves. So God calls Abraham and Abraham responds. That's chapter 12. Chapter 13 Lot and Abraham have to split because they're just so wealthy. They have so many sheep and so many other things that they're kind of running into each other in the pasture land, so they they divide. And then Lot takes the good half. They look out there, and, and Lot looks and says, Wow, look at that grass. I'm going that way. And then you turn over this way, and Abraham says, Well, I, I gave him the, cho- the choice because I trust God. 
So Lot goes off and takes the great grass. Abraham goes over here, and what's the first thing God tells Abraham when he moves over to this side? He says, don't worry. Your blessing's going to be great. Your blessing's going to be great. I'm going to take care of you. That's chapter 13. And then chapter 14, we find that these kings come, and they capture Lot, and they take him away, and that's the, the serving, the undeserving. And Abraham hears of this, and he goes out, and he redeems. He goes and gets Lot and brings him back and meets all the kings in the valley. And, and Abram has to make this decision. We saw this contrast between choosing the wealth from the king of Sodom or giving a tenth to, to Melchizedek. That was chapter 14. And then we run in here to chapter 15. After that battle, we have that battle. He rescued Lot. He's back. He, he had that thing in the valley there with the king of Sodom and all that. And the next thing he says is, after this. That's how we start chapter 15. God came and said, don't fear. I am your shield, chapter 15. And he justifies him. It says, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We're going to spend some time there today, but he's justified. So he was called in 12. We see right here in 15, he's justified. But watch what happens. In, in 15, he has, he has this covenant made and God promises him a son, but we're still 20 years out from that. In chapter 16 then, Abram takes another wife, Hagar, and, and has, a, has Ishmael. Ishmael's born, another son. And then in chapter 17, we have that whole circumcision covenant thing, and Isaac is promised. That's chapter 17. But Isaac isn't born. The promise part isn't fulfilled all the way to chapter 21, 20 years later. And so we just have to kind of keep this time frame and this context in perspective as we see what God is doing. Because if we think all of this just happens in a couple of days or just happens and we miss God's sovereign plan and how he's moving these pieces Around and the responses that Abraham actually has that we can learn from. So that's the context that we're in. Let's look at the, where we are exactly. Verse 1, it says, after this in chapter 15. After what? Well, what we mean is this is tying directly in. Right after this event happens in the valley, Abram goes home and God says, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Now, I can't figure out exactly what fear not means there. Almost every time the word of the Lord or a vision comes to a person, he says, fear not. So it could mean two things here. It could mean, you know, we, and we talked about this with the king of Sodom. He, there, was some, there was some positioning going on with the king of Sodom there, some some words that were more than volatile, that, you know, this, this uh, Catalaomer, this king, he could be coming back to attack, the king of Sodom maybe coming to get him. There could be all these things. And God could be telling him, look, don't fear that. I'm your shield. Could be saying that. Or it could be the other times where when a vision, when God has a, uh, when somebody has a vision, the first thing it said is, don't be afraid. Well, if, if I was sitting out in the field watching my sheep and, and God came to me and was going to give me a vision, there'd be a little bit of fear and trepidation, right? I know my heart. 
I know, I know all these things. Even when, when Isaiah said, you know, I'm a dead man. I'm a man of unclean lips. Right? You, you know that. So that, that could be the fear not also. doesn't really matter. He said, fear not. That's what God told him. I'm your shield. And this is a, this is a word. I just love this picture. I, I went and just typed in shield and thought, all right, what, what does that really mean? And, and all the way through, this is just a, a normal picture of God is your shield. And you can guess where this shows up the most, right? Psalms after psalm after psalm after psalm. And so, you know, I, I just wanted to read a couple of these because this is just encouraging. There's, there's pages of them. Psalm 1830, I won't read them all. But you can look these up because these are really a blessing. This God, His way is perfect, Psalm 1830. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in Him. Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I'm helped. My heart exalts. And with my song, I give thanks to him. Psalm 115.9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their helper and their shield. 115.11. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Are you seeing a combining of words here? The word shield, and there's another word that keeps showing up here with it. Psalm 119.114. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. There's this, there's this combination of the word trust and the word shield when God is being used as a shield. It's interesting that he, he starts off Genesis 15. What's about to happen in Genesis 15 is God's going to reaffirm his promise to Abraham and they're going to do what's called cutting the covenant. We're going to see that next week. But this is a huge thing. And God starts off by saying, I'm your shield. You can trust me. That's how he starts this off. And in the New Testament, we don't use, the word shield doesn't, we don't use that as a a picture of God. We have things like, um, in Colossians 3.3, you have, you've died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What a picture of a shield there. What can man do to me? Nothing. If God is for me, who can be against me? It doesn't matter. Right? I, God is my shield. And so we have that in the New Testament, but we don't use the picture of the shield very often. You do have it in Ephesians 6 where it says we have the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So it's not that the shield never shows up. It takes a little different look. So my shield, and so as I started thinking through that, I thought, okay, I live in a real world now. What does it look like for God to be my shield? I, I like to uh, read uh, Voice of the Martyrs, and, and there's these pastors always running around on motorcycles or bicycles, and, and inevitably there's a set of police somewhere that are going to have their way with this pastor before he gets to where he's going. And as this pastor is pedaling along, what does it mean to him that God is his shield? Because he's about to take a whooping. And every one of these stories have a tendency of going the same way. God is my shield. Don't be afraid. Your reward is great. As he's pedaling along, saying that to himself, my life, I'm, I'm dead. My life now is hidden with Christ in God. God is my shield and my rock. 
and he's paddling along. And the police come and they, they get him and they beat him up and he goes on about his business and 53 people come to Christ that day. But he took his beating still. What does it mean when you live in a real world that God is your shield? And in each one of those psalms, and I would just encourage you to go read these, in each one of these psalms, it's, I trust God. I trust God. He's my shield. I trust God. He's my shield. I trust God's word. He's my shield. It doesn't always say, I trust God. I get a new Lamborghini. I trust God. My job will never come to an end. I trust, that's not what he says. I trust God. He's my shield. He protects me. He, he holds my soul in his hand. He's going to take me. You know, if you, the, 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 we're not going to go to Psalm 73. One of my favorite psalms is the psalmist says, you know what? I almost stumbled watching the rich. Because I see that they're fat and they're happy and their eyes are bulging because they, this was a good thing back then. Their eyes are bulging because they eat so much food. They're just, look at them. They're, they're this, these pictures of perfection. Nothing ever goes wrong with them, and they're wicked. And then there's me. I trust God, and, and I'm being sanctified. But the way it ends is, then I, I thought about their future, their destiny, and I thought about my destiny. And all of a sudden, everything changed. Because God holds my soul in his hand. And I can rejoice in that. I can be thankful in all things. In all things I can give thanks because I know that my life is hidden with Christ in God. He is my shield. His reward will be very great. There's two ways also to look at this one. Is it saying that God is his reward? Or that God is going to reward him? He, he gave all that loot back to the king of Sodom. It's just a way of saying, you know what? Don't worry, I got you covered. I got you covered. I'll replace the sheep that you used and then bless you even beyond that. It very well may mean both because God is his reward. He's his shield and his, he's his reward. And as he trusts in him, God prospered Abram. Well, Abram hears that and he moves on right away. He says, God, he, he, he says, Lord God. He's being reverent here. But you can see the pain in Abram right away. Because he says, what, what does great reward mean to me? I don't have an heir. You've given me no children. I'm childless. Who am I going to give all this to? Earlier on, way back in 13, you told me that, that I'm going to be a great nation in these things. But how is that supposed to work out? I don't even have an heir. And if you bless me so greatly reverently so what okay now back in the day this was a big deal because now families are important to us but back then families became nations and solidarity in the family is a huge thing and to be childless is a, almost a curse and so you feel this plea of abram's heart god thank you thank you there's the reverency but you haven't given me a son my own heir is just a member of my household. So God takes him. He says, no. No, your heir will be your own son. And you can see Abram just, yes, yes, I'm just. He, he trusted God all the time. And he, he, I bet he kind of hoped that 
already. He knew he had this promise. Through you, all these nations are going to be blessed. You're going to be a great nation. And so Abram's not a dumb guy. So we probably put a couple things together, but he hadn't heard it directly from the Lord yet. God said, no, no, your son is going to be your heir, your heir. He takes him outside and he says, look up, count the stars if you can. I mean, that, that's tough to do, right? They're not living in downtown Denver where you can only see two stars and those are really street lights, right? They're out in the country roaming all the sheep. It's dark. And so when he looks up, there's just stars everywhere. And so being obedient, he starts, okay, one, two. This is, it, it took a while to get through this. If you can, that's going to be your offspring. They're going to be innumerable just like the stars, what does it say? It says, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. And we see this same kind of picture after the resurrection. Peter and John run to the tomb. And John waits outside. Peter runs in, checks things out, comes back out. And it says, John peeked in, the other disciple peeks in, and it says, and he believed, right? He believed right then. And so we kind of get a feel for what that, that, whole, that whole thought means. It's done. His entire worldview just changed right now. This wasn't a, okay, God, I, I get it now, kind of. Oh, no, 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 no. This, this changed who Abram was. When it says he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, he now believed forever. His entire view of what God was doing is now set in stone. He's got it. His whole worldview just changed. So there's, there's three words. Oh, and there is something here. And Calvin wrote this. He said, you know, we wouldn't know. We would just read by this like we read by most other passages in the Old Testament if the New Testament just didn't peel this apart. All right? The Old Testament, it, this is quoted three or four different times and it's just used over and over and over in the New Testament as it's explained when it says he believed and it was reckoned or it was counted or it was credited to him as righteousness. Essentially, the Christian faith is built off of that statement. It's not by works that you're saved. It's by faith that you're saved. Believing God is how you're credited as righteous. Okay, big church words. And that's exactly what they are. These are church words that we throw around like gumballs. What do they mean? Because if, if in fact, the big question of what we titled this, this, this message was, how, we stole this from Job, how does a man, how can he be righteous in front of a holy God? It, it, just starting this morning, it was interesting how, how the Spirit kind of went there this morning as we were praying, that it doesn't take us very long to sit back and go, hmm, I need forgiveness. There's no way I could stand in front of a righteous God. No way. And every one of a given enough time, you can lie to yourself for a little while, but eventually you can't act anymore. And you'll realize that, that without God doing something, you can't stand in His presence. And we looked at that last week of, how important it really is that we have this mediator and that we can now move into the presence of God. But we know on ourselves we can't do that. And so, a couple of words here. Believed, 
God counted, and righteous. And let's just kind of look at these. Because this really is the essence of the gospel in the Old Testament. Let's look at the word believed first. Because that's what he did. It's that believing that produced this righteousness. And that's what we want. It's the hunger of every believer. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness because they're going to be filled. Every believer desires to be in right standing with God. And so if what Abram did to, to get that right standing was believe, we need to know what that is. The word is actually amen. That's what it is. It's amen. Essentially, Abram said, so be it. It is that way now forever. I believe it. I trust it. The, the kind of blown out definition for the word believed here is to put your, lean your full weight against. If I did that, we would fall over right now. I don't believe in this podium. And we, we use this word a lot when, we're, when you're doing Sunday school. This is a tough, it's an easy word to say. It's a tough word to really understand because the word believe has action all over it. The word, I mean, and, and it doesn't have to. In the English language, we can talk about believe in this and believe in that. And, and, and it, it really just means think. But the word believe is wrapped up. It has action just that tight with it. And so here's what I do. And I remember I, I took one child and, and I put him up on a table. And I said, do you believe that I'm strong enough to hold you? And the child says, well, yes. I said, okay, fine, fall. He falls down and I catch him. I didn't right away. I kind of held my hands up there because I let him taste and see that I wasn't going to drop him on the floor. And then eventually I just stepped back and let him fall and <laughs> caught him down here. Well, then, most of you know uh, little Jacob O'Burke, and he loves this story. Jacob O'Burke stands on the table, and Jacob's a smart boy. He knows falling off a table is really going to hurt. So he stands up on the table, and I said, do you believe I'm strong enough to catch you? He says, oh, yes. I said, all right. I put my hands here. I said, all right, a little more. No, I can't do it. I can't do it. And so we sat there for 20 minutes trying to get him to fall off. Do you believe that I'm strong enough? Do you believe I'm going to catch you? Yes, Mr. Richards, I believe you're going to catch me. Okay, fall. I can't. I can't. This is, you can't ask for a better Sunday school lesson than this. Okay? He just could not fall off the table. The entire time we tried it, he could not fall and let me catch him. Even though he said with his mouth, I believe you're strong enough. I believe you won't let me fall on the ground. I believe, I believe, I believe. No, I'm not going to fall off the table. So we go away. I just love on him. Hey, fine. It's, it had nothing to do with your salvation. It was just an exercise. He didn't accept that. He was little. He was just a little thing now. Well, the next week, he's waiting for me in the front door of the church building. And I get there. He says, I'm ready. I'm ready. So we go back up to the room. I put him on the table and I say, do you believe that I can catch you and I'm not going to let you fall on the floor? Yes, Mr. Richards, I believe. Fall. Oh, no, I can't do it. Okay, after a few minutes, he did finally do it. Believe and action are tied right together. To say, I believe God, but yet I don't trust what he's doing and I don't trust his plan for my life, your life, the, the universe, that's a lie. That's what we call sloppy sentimentalism. Oh, I believe in God. You hear it all the time, right? I believe in God, but I don't like this. I believe in God, but I really hate that Paul, they, they put that stuff from Paul in the Bible. I believe in God, but I don't like that thing where God does that. That's not believing God. 
Believing God means you take God at his word and you accept that you're wrong. That's what believing God is. The Bible says that none are righteous. None. Which means none of us think like God does. And therefore, when we're confronted with a thing where God says, this is the direction, this is my character, this is holiness, and we're going this way, you have two options. You either believe God and you turn, or you don't believe God and you kind of walk around going, I I believe in God. (laughs) But you're lying. You're lying. And this is a great place for meditation. Because when... When David sits and says, God, expose to me, expose to me those, those wicked ways in me that I don't even know. Show me what they are because I desire to be in line with you all the way. I desire that sanctification happens, that, is that I'm going through life and I'm learning and I'm seeing these things in my life that I don't believe you in. I want to be changed, so show me those things. We have uh, in the New Testament where Jesus says, uh, do you believe that I can do this in and the man says, I, I, I do believe, but help my, my unbelief, right? Because none of us, none of us are righteous. None of us just seek after wanting to believe God at everything. There's this flesh inside of us that says, I'm the most important. I'm the center of the universe. And, and you just can't bring that in line with God. Humility is ugly. It's ugly. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and he will exalt you. Huh. That's hard. That's hard. So, believe is action. Lean your full weight. You know, if you want to read about what it means to believe, read the book of John. John has 20 chapters. 18 of those 20 chapters speak about believing. And I went through just to make sure that was true. I actually went through and looked at each one of them this morning to count. And I just went through and saw which ones were left out. And it's only two. There's like... Chapter 15 and 18 don't talk about believing directly. And then it ends like this. Chapter 20, verse 31 says, All these things have been written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ and in him you'll have life. So the whole book is written. Abram believed God and he was brought back into relationship with God. It was, create, it was, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And the book of John says, it's written so that you may believe God. That he did send Christ on your behalf. That you may have uh, life in him. Let's go to the next one. God counted. So it says, he believed God and God counted it as righteousness. What does that mean? And there's a story I found. So, my boys like to go to the guitar center. And so I tell them, all right, it's Wednesday. I need you to clean your room. And, and when you get home from school, if your room is clean, we'll go to the guitar center and you can and rock your brains out and have a great time. And so he gets busy in the morning and, and he forgets to clean his room. He scurries off to school. I go up and I notice his room's not clean. So I roll up my sleeves. I clean his room. Clean the whole room. He comes back from school, he gets a little busy, and I said, well, we're going to go to the guitar center. He said, oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I I got distracted, 
and I forgot to clean my room. And I say, you know what? That apology, I'm going to take that apology and I'm going to call that cleaning your room. Let's go. That's what it means that he believed God and it was counted as righteousness. None of us have righteousness of our own. None of us just walk around with righteousness. We can't produce it. We can't earn it. We can, there's nothing we can do to, to be righteous in front of a holy God. The only way we can have righteousness is if God takes something else and counts it or and puts it in the account of righteousness. Essentially converts it to righteousness. So it says Abram believed God and that believing, that action of believing, God took that action and said, I'm going to make this righteousness. That's what the big word imputed righteousness means. You didn't earn it. You didn't produce it. You did nothing. God took something else called faith, called your belief, and he counted it as righteousness. That's what he did. Now, we got to be careful with this, with this analogy because some bad analogies can come out of this. Because I was trying to think, okay, what are some other analogies like this? A kid goes up to a, this is a bad analogy, okay? A kid goes into a bike store and he says, ooh, I like that red bike, I want to buy it. And so he goes up to the counter and the cashier says, that'll be $200. And so the kid rumbles in his pockets and he pulls out six jelly beans and he puts them out on the counter and the cashier says, oh, that'll be fine, you cute little kid. It's good enough. Take the bike. That's not the same. That's not the same. We don't produce something in payment for righteousness. You see that? It's not that the cashier could just take something. It's not like God says, oh, you know, wink, wink. You're okay, wink, wink. Just come on in. That's not it. This is a very specific crediting. It says he took believing and all the way through Scripture, here's the, here's the equation. Believing is counted as righteousness. Not jelly beans, not your works, not dirty rags, nothing. Believing is what is accounted as righteousness. Nothing else. That's what the word counted as righteousness means. And then the last word there is righteousness. It doesn't matter how many times I built this slide, I scribbled stuff all over it. How do you... How do you express righteousness? I mean, this is used so many times. The entire theme of the Bible is God bringing man back to himself. God glorifying himself in this act of reconciling man to himself. It's everywhere. Because the word righteousness means I'm, being, I'm in right standing with God. And right from the beginning, man is not in right standings with God. When Adam fell, sin entered... Sin and holy God cannot be in the same place. Man cannot produce righteousness. It simply doesn't work that way. You're not capable of it. Therefore, God had to come and, and fix the entire problem himself. And when we look next week, when, when we actually go through this Abrahamic covenant, and we see that only God makes the promise. He doesn't even let Abraham be a piece of it. Because he can't. 
Only God can fix this problem of man not having righteousness. And so here's another good exercise at your dinner table. Just sit back and try and come up with every passage you can think of about righteousness. The righteous that live by faith, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. I mean, on and on and on. None of you seek righteousness, not even one. And I just kind of sat down and jotted a bunch of them down this morning. Just how many, how many of these passages just come to your head about righteousness? It's all the way through Scripture. So here, what does it mean? Again, we're trying to... The passage is belief produces this thing called righteousness. And we don't want to... It, it doesn't have to be too sticky. It's simply this. Peace with God. You've been reconciled back to God. You are now in right standing. You're righteous. Right standing with God. That's it. We don't have to make it too much more complicated. And if you read it over and over and over in Scripture, that's all it means. You did the right thing. Right thing with who? The right thing in the eyes of God. It means you choose God's way. That's what it means. When we have righteous acts, it means we chose God's way. If you're righteous, you believe God. That makes you righteous. So let's pile all these things together then. There are three places in Scripture that, that tie these things together. And I just, uh, I, I put them up there so you can write them down. You want to go read these. You have Romans 4, Galatians 3, and the other one. Oh, yeah, James 2. And, and go and read these. This is where this, this passage in Genesis is quoted. Where he said, he actually, they actually quote, Abraham believed God and it was credited in him as righteousness. We start in, in, Genesis, or in, in Romans 4. Here's how Romans 4 peels that back. Paul is making the argument that it, you are not saved by what you do. And it's interesting that when Paul writes Romans 4 and he quotes this piece from, from Abram, he dives right from there into David in the 35th, 32nd, 32nd Psalm. And David is saying this. What did David do? He, he, he didn't go to battle and he went up on his roof and he looked out and he saw a beautiful woman. He committed adultery with that woman. He lied about it. And then the third thing, he committed murder. The law can't handle three things. He's just a dead man. You just have to kill him. There's nothing that the law can do to, to, wreck, to bring this guy back. There's no sacrifice. There's nothing. We have three breaks. David cannot be redeemed by the law. And David knows it. And in Psalm 32, he goes off and says, it starts off this way, blessed is a man whose iniquity God doesn't count against him. Because right away he knows he has to just fall on the mercy of God. There's nothing left that he can do but believe God in his mercy. And it's interesting that Paul uses this event in David's life and couples it with, you're not saved by works. You're only saved by the grace of God. In fact, people, you're unredeemable. The only way you can be redeemed is if God steps in and you believe him at his word. That's it. So that's Romans 4. And then we have Galatians 3, and that one's exciting to us because it says, you know what? All of this happened before Abram was circumcised. So what? What it means is Abram was still a Gentile 
when he believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. So that means us, we now can be saved. We also can be righteous, even though they had the oracles of God and, and the law through them and all these things. But all of this happened when he was still a Gentile. So us as Gentiles, we also can be saved and don't have to work and don't have to do all these things. Right? But just in case we want to get a little bit sentimental and just go with the easy believism, James goes ahead and quotes it too. And those of you who have studied James, here's what he says. He says, well... Um, he quotes, Abraham believed God was credited as righteousness, but he says, but wasn't he really justified because he acted in faith when he sacrificed Isaac? Oops. So just in case we, we want to we wanna kind of lean on this, uh, I, I believe God, but I don't want my life to be transformed by believing in God because it's not really a life, a life change. It's just kind of another thing that I've assimilated. Right? I believe football is fun, and I believe God, and I believe... This is different than that. And so, in James, we see him going on and saying, you know what, yes, you are saved by believing. And we say that you're saved by faith alone. But James turns that around a little bit and says, but you're not saved by faith that is alone. You see that? If your faith isn't, isn't running up against God and going, wait a minute, I'm wrong, and making turns, if your worldview doesn't change so that your life changes with it, your faith is dead. That's what James says. It says you think you believe, but you don't. Now, this is a place in the church that we have to be real careful. It's a place with our kids that we have to be really careful. And, and we don't run around and grab onto somebody and say... You're in the kingdom. You're a Christian. I saw you walk down there. I see you carry your Bible. You're a believer. You've been redeemed. You're righteous before God. And, and doing it because you, you don't really see into this person's heart whether or not they truly believe or don't. You don't know that. Do they believe God? Well, here's ways you can tell, though. With your spirit bears witness with God's spirit that you're a child of God. So as you're sitting down, you're asking God, God, show me. What is it in my life? Am, am, I, am I one of yours? Am I righteous? Do I believe you? God, show me these ways in my heart where, where I'm running up against you and not wanting to change. Test me there and show me and, and watch this. I have to be very careful how I say this because if you're in Christ, don't carry condemnation around with you and always wondering, oh, no. I don't know if I'm saved or I'm not saved. And it's a great thing to think through and, and ask God, am I one of your children? It says test yourself daily to see that you're in the faith. Ask yourself, is my faith dead? Am I just running around saying, oh, I believe God? Or does that faith, does that belief actually change your life? All the way back to Genesis 1 as we wrap up here. We were created in the image of God. That image was marred by the fall. When we come back to Christ, we're returning to that image of God. We have a big church word for that. Instantly, when you believe God, you are justified and you are in the kingdom. But as we practically start working that out day to day, as we start seeing 
that that belief system is changing our life, we call that sanctification. And it's different. In the day-to-day life, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But that's not what saves us. It says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. He was right with God. When we believe God at his word, that Jesus is the Christ, he came to die for your sin, that you might have life in him, that's it. You believe that and it'll change your life. Because all the little things, especially the Holy Spirit, gets inside your life and starts making these changes because that's what you believe. So the last piece there, I stole that from Job. How can man be righteous before a holy God? It's simple. You believe God. And it's interesting that the concept is so easy, but it's so expensive. Right? In Sunday school, they're, they're studying the kingdom of God right now and today. And the kingdom of God is like that pearl that a merchant finds and goes out and sells everything he has. And goes back and purchases it. Buys the land. Well, I guess there's two things there. But it costs everything. Everything. So in concept, it's so easy. You believe God. But as you believe God and you wake up tomorrow and find out that he's going to start changing your life, it's hard. Because you have to, in order to come to God, you have to know that you weren't righteous to begin with. And so we have the promise that God's going to give you everything you need for life and godliness. You want to come to Christ? You want to believe God? You want to see your life sanctified and brought in line with who God is? Not only is God going to call you, God's going to justify you, but God's going to sanctify you and bring you to the end. He's going to give you everything you need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for what a great salvation we have that you've... uh, those of us that, that are yours, God, you've called us and you've justified us. You've made us righteous. And God, moving forward, I pray this for every one of us, Lord, that, that we would hunger and thirst for that righteousness. And in that, God, you would give us everything we need for life and godliness and that you would you'd bring us in line with yourself. So, Lord, I do pray that this isn't just informational, but you use it and transform us. You transform our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.